Welcome to Running on Purpose, a weekly podcast dedicated to training the body, the mind, and the soul for what the race requires. My name is Steve Sisson, and I will be your host. Hello, world. Welcome to episode seven of the Running on Purpose podcast. This episode is an interview. It's the first interview I've ever done uh, for this iteration of my podcasting career. Uh, I did it in a remote location, Houston, Texas, with a former athlete of mine and an Olympian, Lenny Waite, and whose now role and, and occupation is as a sports psychologist. She works for uh, University of St. Thomas. She's also working... Um, begun working with USATF, the track and fields governing body. She's also in private practice, does her own sports psych work and consulting work. You can uh, look her up online. Her website is www.lennywaite.com. We have a a far-ranging conversation. Uh, It's pretty much the way I operate. (laughs) We talk about state of the sport in some ways, mental training, concepts, uh, psychological concepts that can be valuable to the athlete. We run the gamut from high school and college, professional and age group athletes. We talk about just a, a whole wide range of things. I've, I'm entitling this interview Mind and Meaning because obviously we talk about mental training concepts and the way the mind plays in our training and racing. But additionally, we talk a good bit about purpose and meaning, and anyone who's listened to this podcast or knows me knows that that is a very interesting topic to me. It's really nice to get Lenny's perspective, both as an athlete, a former athlete, and professional athlete, and at the highest level, and also as a sports psychologist who works with athletes on a day-to-day basis, helping them work through these concepts. So I think it's just a unique and interesting She's just such an amazing person to talk to about these topics. So I was really excited that she was willing to have this interview. Thank you, Lenny, if you're listening, for being willing to be subjected to my meandering conversations and my meandering questions. A couple of technical issues here. I have a couple of technical things I want to discuss. Number one, sound quality on this is a little uh, to be asked for. I, I First time I've recorded in a, in a remote location and I didn't have Lenny's microphone set up just right, so I had to do some post-production work, and there is a few times where she sort of gets kind of loud, and she's generally quieter than I am, and I did the best I could. I'm not a professional sound editor, but I think it's uh, passable. Um, If it's distracting, I apologize. That is entirely my fault, but I think the content and the flow and the conversation is so good that it's worth um, it's worth your time and attention. Number two, the duration. We, uh, we went for an hour and 15 minutes, and with this intro, it'll probably be somewhere in the an hour and 20 minute long. There really wasn't any location to break it up. I've been trying to keep the episode somewhere between 45 minutes and an hour. But this is an interview, and it's an it's a, it's a in-the-moment conversation with someone who is really good at what they do and really interesting. And I just didn't think it was worth breaking up, so I didn't. So apologies to those of you who that upsets, um, but such is life. This is why I get to do it the way I want to. 
Um, I think the content is fantastic, as I stated, and Lenny was game, and it was a lot of fun. Finally, um, and as I'll send this straight to the interview itself, it jumps in right away. Um, I talk immediately about uh, she just started working with the USATF, our governing body, and so I start off with that conversation. And then as we go, I do a short, I do, don't do much of an intro. I allow her to introduce herself. So I'll say this again. Lenny Wade is a professional sports psychologist. She works in private practice. She also works for University of St. Thomas, and she has consulting roles with the USATF. She's a former Olympian, went to Rice University, um, and is from originally Austin, Texas, although her family has Scottish roots, and she runs when she competes at the international level for Scotland and the Great Britain. So without further ado, here is Lenny Waite, and I hope you enjoy. How long have you been working with USATF? When did that all, when did that all happen? So that happened um, around uh, probably, I started speaking to some people in at the annual conference in October, the Association for Applied Sports Psychology annual conference. And I was talking, uh, did a presentation with somebody who was on the board for the USA Track and Field Sports Psychology Subcommittee, um, who we, we connected through a mutual coach that's based in Houston. And I did a talk with him, and then they were looking for new people to be part of the group for the 2020 to 2024, and he thought that I would have a unique perspective as somebody who was an Olympian and yeah. had been through that cycle and who had had some experiences with sports psychology through that process for a different country, but yeah. um, still knew a lot about it and asked me if I wanted to be a part of it, which absolutely, I think yeah. my whole goal when I got into sports psychology was having the opportunity to work with Olympic caliber athletes. I didn't really mind what sport. Uh, and then it kind of came a little bit sooner than I thought with USA track and field. And who knows what kinds of opportunities that opens up. Yeah. In the a, a lot. Yeah. Already. Um, you know, there's, there's a lot of people training for the Olympics in Houston. And mm -hmm. now that I'm connected with uh, USA track and field, I can have access to some more of those people that they can use some of the resources through the U.S. Olympic and Paralympic Committee, and they can use me, and that's really fun. Do they, do you work, so you would be working with athletes, throwers, jumpers, mm -hmm. distance runners, all levels? Yeah, all, all, across all events. Wow. And do you go, have you been to a couple of different events for this, or what do you, did you go to the, the, Meet, didn't they have a meeting in December? Doesn't USATF have some kind yeah, of Yeah, so meeting? I'm going you... to their annual meeting in December because yeah. I'm actually, as part of this process for building sports psychology services for the, we call it the 2020 to 2024 quadrennium, as part of that, we are trying to collect data on what athletes actually want. Mm. So sports psychology is not ex like not very objective. So when you work with, you know, uh, physiologists or um, biomechanics, people who work on biomechanics, they have numbers that they can present in how they change the efficiency of their athletes or the impact that they have. When you work with a sports psychology professional, it's like, oh no, they, they made me feel better. I enjoyed the process of working with them. But that sometimes doesn't translate into medals or personal bests. And so sports psychology has historically struggled with advocating for why athletes need us. Mm -hmm. So I, at that annual conference, my goal is to figure out from athletes, what do they want in terms of sports psychology services? Why do they need us? How can we add to their journey across the four years? How do we make them know that we are available 
through USA Track and Field to help them. Uh, so I'm going to that annual conference to do some of that research with athletes. That's really cool that USATF is willing to go outside the box of the metric box because that has been mm-hmm. one of the critiques for them for so long is they're looking for ways to metrically indicate that the they need metrics to show that the revenues that they spent for, towards athletes have been useful and beneficial. And the USATF's stated goal obviously should be to get medals. Mm-hmm. But as you said, sports psychology is not an area where necessarily you're going to be able to get a clear metric on that. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I mean, you should, I guess, if you, you would be able to say that somebody who got a medal but they're, but you're not going to be able to show them that they're like the person who does the biomechanist is going to be able to say, "Hey, look, your look at how their jump is different, or mm-hmm. look at how their their stride rate is different." Mm-hmm. Where yours is like the inner workings between their ears, and not necessarily mm-hmm. as, and it's only going to be user experience that's going to tell you whether or not they were successful. Yeah. So we're hoping that although we can't get that objective data, if we can describe some subjective experiences and get some kind of case studies on how athletes have benefited from these services. And also it's not so much like maybe not during that four year cycle specifically, but they will have more success, maybe transitioning out of the sport. They will have better mental health outcomes when they retire or when they are searching for a job after their track and field career is over. And I think that, we, as people who work with those athletes trying to make the Olympics, we're responsible for that still. Yeah, you are. And they're, I don't know, it's just cool. It, mm-hmm. It's super exciting to me to think that I have been a, I've been bashing USATF for most of my career. <laughs> and it's nice to hear them doing things that seem to be, uh, if they want, anyway, there's lots of ways they can grow and this is a great way to grow. Yeah. This is a great way for them to be able to make impacts and for and to have found somebody like yourself who absolutely understands what competing at this level means Mm -hmm. and has had the challenges of working all the way up to that level Mm -hmm. um, throughout your career and then also having dealt with the issues that are attendant to being a participant for a country like Great Britain whose (laughs) process of of selecting their teams is not necessarily what's well, it's subjective, right? Very subjective. So they, they have an asterisk at the end of every selection um, process saying that everything can come down to just somebody's subjective opinion. Yeah. Well, let's, let's, uh, we've already started, but we'll introduce you now. Okay. Okay. <laughs> um, I'm with Lenny Waite. Lenny, we give us a little bit of an idea of your, your basic CV. Yeah. So I, uh, was an Olympic athlete. Um, coached by Steve right here. (laughs) And I was a 3000 meter steeplechaser, but came to that pretty late well, later in my athletic career than, um, some people may think Olympians start training. So I was a soccer player, went to Rice university to play soccer, was recruited to run track in college, but honestly, a lot of the mental side of running didn't appeal to me. So the thought that Uh, you know, running is painful. You're exposed. There is a time attached to every single performance. People know when you do well and when you do poorly. And in soccer, you can have a bad game and your team can still win. You, um, you can have a, a a great game and score goals. And I don't know the way the statistics are attached to it. There's more, there are more places to hide and potentially less pressure that you have to feel. And I think that's what I liked about soccer. 
Um, but I got to college and, uh, Jim Bevan at Rice was smart enough to recruit me off of the <laughs> soccer field. And he basically, he basically showed up after my last soccer game with a, with a uniform and put me on a bus to Stephen F. Austin to run an 800. And I loved it. I had so much fun. I think at that point I had stepped away from competing for long enough that I had taken away all that pressure. Like I hadn't trained for the race. So why it didn't even matter. And I really went out there just to have fun for the first time, probably since like middle school, you know, once I got into high school, the pressure started building and, uh, loved it. And then just got integrated into the team, had a really good, good group of girls, improved a lot each year and ended up, uh, as a two-time All-American. My, my fifth year at Rice got a couple of school records in the 1500 and the mile and, um, then was good enough in the steeplechase to continue post-collegiately. Born in Scotland, so I graduated <laughs> from uh, Rice in 2009, and because I was born in Scotland, I had that opportunity to compete in the Commonwealth Games in 2010, which was the reason that I continued running post-collegiately. I think without that international competition on the horizon, I would have felt pressured to get what they call a real job. Mm -hmm. um, so I'm, I'm fortunate that that year was a Commonwealth Games year, and I got the qualifying standard uh, for that at the NCAA Championships. And... From there, you know, just kind of fell in love with the with the heartbreak and the and the, and the triumph feelings of of trying to of being and at times it felt like trying to be a professional athlete. Uh, had a lot of ups and downs. Just missed out on the Olympics in 2012 and actually walked away from the sport in 2014 after the Commonwealth Games. Moved to Austin, started working with uh, Steve again in Rogue and through that group realized that I still had a lot left to give and uh, kind of refound that passion and that love and desire to to give it one last go for the Olympics and mm. made it. Yeah. So, sounds After, like a fairy tale story, but it's not really. <laughs> yeah, you and I both know all of the challenges that went with that. So tell mm -hmm. us a little bit about your experience in how, when you started to think that maybe doing something with the mental side of mm -hmm. the sport could be some, number one was something you were interested in beyond the experience you had in high school where you were like, I don't want to do this. Yeah. By the way, we are explicit on this podcast. So if you can use any language that you choose to, <laughs> I will probably drop a few F-bombs. I'm known to do it. But just so you know, you can say whatever you want. Um, but you're... So you went somewhere, somewhere along yeah. you went from saying, oh my gosh, the mental side of this is crazy to then having a more free and loose experience of it to mm -hmm. then at some point saying, wow, I think this might be something I want to do for a living. So. Mm -hmm. Walk us through that process and sort of because you're doing it as an elite athlete throughout that time frame. Yeah. And I mean, just so our listeners know, you sort of skated through your collegiate career. You were an absolute epic badass at the collegiate level all the way through mm -hmm. at both the fifth, mostly as a miler mm -hmm. and then as a steepler later on. So talk us through just what, you know, you're at a high level competing at a high level and thinking through the mental side of this. Mm -hmm. Is that because you were tinkering on yourself or was it more like you were seeing challenges with other people or was it just you were into psychology? <laughs> so I think, um, I think whenever people take a psychology class, they start relating everything that they learn to themselves. And that I remember my psychology professor telling me that in college, this is, you are going to identify with very specific aspects of that court of the course. Especially and, like Maslow. Like yeah. you, go, you go through Maslow's <laughs> hierarchy <laughs> and you're yeah. like, whoa, this is real shit as opposed to like, you know, differential equations or, you know, dissecting frogs. It's a, it's a little bit different. Yeah. So I started to apply a lot of those principles to my life. And also in college, because I was technically a walk-on when I showed up at Rice, uh, when I when I switched to running, um, 
I didn't have huge expectations for myself. So I was, like I said, I was just happy to be out there and not have a ton of pressure attached to my performances. <clears throat> there was a turning point. It was my senior year, early on in my senior year, where Jim Bevan, the coach at Rice, told me that I I could perform better in races. Uh, and I don't like letting people down. I think generally people, my coaches are, I, I like to think they are proud of me of the effort that I put forward. And it was the first time in a, maybe ever that a coach had kind of come up to me and be like, Hey, I actually think you're like underperforming slightly. He didn't say it in those words, but that's what he meant. Um, and I was confused and I was like, what, what are you talking about? And he goes, you know, you train with some of these girls on the team, people like Callie, Callie Wells at the mm -hmm. time, uh, now Callie Thomas. And he's like, but when you get into races, you never tried to run with her. And I laughed and I said, well, that's because Callie's better than I am. Hmm. And he looked at me and he was like, okay, so that's where the problem is. Uh, you don't view yourself as a good athlete. So you will never, you will never race at the front of races. And he challenged me in the next race to go out harder, to run closer to the front of the race. And I remember that was the year I think I dropped my mile time from like 502 to 450 in the first race. And then I was down to 445 in the mile by the end of my senior season. And it was all because someone put the thought in my head that I had this fixed view of my ability and I was letting that dictate how I was performing in races. I always worked really hard in practice, but when I got into race, I had already determined where I was going to finish um, until somebody expressed some form of disappointment in my racing. And I was like, oh, I didn't even realize I was doing that. Uh, and I joke now because at that time when I saw runners who were running in the 440 for the mile, I honestly thought that like maybe they had like a, you know, crazy special superhuman power or like a hidden lung somewhere. Like I just didn't view it possible for me because that was for the other people. Hmm. Um, and that going through that cycle was the first time I was like, huh, actually how you think about yourself as an athlete dictates a lot of how you go out and perform. So you were able to take the physical part of performance and say, that's not all there is. Yes. And that's a game changer. Yes. Yeah. Um, and I, and now looking back on it, it's like, how did I not see that before? Because I did. I worked my butt off in practice and I was probably more exhausted at the end of training sessions, hanging with people because I didn't want to like not train with my friends. But for whatever reason, I did not bring that over into the competition environment until someone was like, Hey, look at this. You're Did you spend any time it. on sports, on, on mental training and such in your soccer career? Were those things that were talked about from a team perspective? And you were a, mm -hmm. a high level soccer player. Mm -hmm. I mean, mm -hmm. you were competing at a, I mean, you got a college scholarship mm -hmm. for it. So did they have like workshops and things for young people or did Rice have some of that stuff where they maybe worked on that or, or at, not? At Rice? No, I never had that at Rice. Um, I remember I went to some soccer camps and they worked on some like relaxation training and that at the time wasn't super helpful because I was confident enough at the high school level that I didn't need to be real. I didn't worry about making mistakes because you were having fun. I, yeah, I was having fun. And you I was playing. honestly better than most people because yeah. I was competing at high school in college is when I needed the help because I was suddenly competing against people who were as good and better. Mm -hmm. um, and that's when I started making a lot of mistakes. And I struggled my freshman season because out of that fear of making mistakes on the soccer field, that really took away a lot of my enjoyment. And we actually had somebody who took statistics on like how many forward passes and how many backward passes and like how many positive touches we had in a game. And I knew they were taking those statistics. And I remember I would go out on the field and I'd be so scared to touch the ball. Cause I was like, what if I, if I 
make an error, it's, it's being marked down on the clipboard. Um, which was like bringing me back to the same pressure feelings I was having as a runner, which I think made it a little bit easier for me to transition out of the sport again at that point. Yeah. So I wish I would have had a sports psychology professional be like, dude, go out there and play like no one's watching. That like, doesn't right. matter. But. Yeah. It's interesting how that, I was just curious as that. So when you transitioned from, when you figured that out mm-hmm. and that's indoors, right? That's where you had that really big was it indoors or outdoors? Or when, was it your... when, so it was for when I first ran at, for Rice? No, no. When was, you had that oh, big it, change, it when you went from 502 yeah. to yeah. four, I mean, you went all the way to making it to the NCAA championships indoors, right? My So the following year. So that year I was you on, just I just missed making it in the mile. Um, and that's when I, when I decided to come back for that fifth year um, and then cut that time down again to 438. Yeah. For our listeners, this whole time I was coaching at the University of Texas and watching Lenny very closely because Coach Bevan and I, well, I just have the most immense amount of respect. And I, I say love for Coach Bevan because anybody who meets him knows that he's the big, one of the biggest hearts that exists. And we have a mutual hero in Coach Hill, and the fact that he's influenced both of us a whole lot. And Coach Bevan and I got to spend lots of time. But watching you perform and make that jump was eye-opening for me because I also – knew from my own running career that things that were holding me back were psychological, Mm -hmm. but never knew how to make, there's like this tiny little step between who you are and who you want to be. But it seems in the moment, like the largest chasm, Mm -hmm. like the biggest space. And when you look at it later, you're like, all you had to do was step a little bit over the edge. Mm -hmm. And as a coach, it's so much easier to see because you're, you know what the athlete's done physically. You know what they're capable of. You see their limitations. And it's so to watch Coach Bevan go through that, watch you perform that way and to know, like just to see psych- the psychology change mm-hmm. and then to get to work with you later on. Mm-hmm. And then now you're a sports psychologist. All of it is to me why I'm doing this interview because I've moved in my career away from thinking that the physiology is crucial to the point where I'm pretty uh, adamant that the psychology is what's holding 90% of people back, if not more. Mm-hmm. And so anyway, here I am interviewing you while I'm going off on a long conversation. <laughs> <But> <laughs> my point being, Lenny and I have some background. I got to watch this whole process. And so I couldn't remember whether it was your indoor, which because your indoor season, your your fifth year was when yeah. you just had an absolute breakout. Yeah. Everything I touched, I, I, every single race I lined up for, I exceeded my expectations. Which... Was that because you'd change your your mindset changed your training, which then changed your, like, that's an interesting concept to me is like your, so talk, talk us through that process. Yeah. So when I came, um, when I made the decision to come back that fifth year, I had so much more confidence than I'd ever had before. Uh, cause I was a huge, I mean, I, I was a running geek, so I would go on let's run when I, and read about runners and like, look at people competing at nationals. And that's when I would think, oh man, like, I wonder what their hidden superhuman talent is. And like, I'll never be like that, but it's so awesome. They can run that fast. And there was a meet where I was running and I remember running past people and being like, oh my gosh, I, I read about you. I like read your interview because you're super fast. And I, it was that moment when I was actually, my body was moving past these people who I admired that I suddenly was like, oh, you're a good runner. Um, and as soon as I had that light bulb go off, I felt like I started training like it. I was committed um, in terms of diet, in terms of sleep, in terms of like reducing all of my stressors before races. It completely 
changed how I viewed what I was doing because I took myself seriously and I don't think I ever took myself that seriously before that as I didn't view myself as, as a great athlete. Uh, and as soon as I changed the way that I viewed myself, that translated into workouts. And, um, you know, then the biggest thing was Jim was always like, well, we'll pump the brakes a little bit. <laughs> like you don't need to go so hard. So then it became, because you are a hard worker. You're one yeah. of the hardest workers I've ever coached. Mm-hmm. That's for sure. Oh, thank you're, you. you're always, whatever is there. And you're also trained smart and that you don't overdo it. You trust your coaches, but you will do what they tell you to do or die. Like that's not, that's, you'd think that would be typical on the kind of athlete that you were, but the level of athlete that you were, but it's absolutely not true. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) And I don't think Jim knew me. He didn't know my limits at that point because I had improved so much. And it was, it was sort of a hard game for him of how much to push me to find my limits, but then not to push me over the edge. And I remember my fifth year cross country season, he did push me over the edge because I, I started really responding to all of the workouts and it came, it came to the point where he was like, you know, maybe she's going to be this great 6k cross country runner this year. And we rolled the dice a little bit. And on some workouts, you know, he would start the team, he'd start me 10 seconds back and I would chase him down and I could do it every time, but I ran out of gas at the end of that season. The base, which is yeah, why we ended yeah. up working together and working well because we just changed. It was it was easy for me to sit outside and see all the wonderful things Coach Bevan did and know where your weaknesses were, mm-hmm. and I could just make a few tweaks. And it looked like I was a mad scientist, but really, both Jim and I looked over at each other and said, "Yeah, if I'd had a little more time, I would have done that too." Yeah. But um, yeah. So I'm really interested in this idea of how you viewed yourself and how that viewing of yourself mm-hmm. changed your experience of being an athlete. Mm-hmm. Do you think that that's the first step for most people? Or do you think that there are, because that's a huge, uh-huh. viewing yourself as a superhero, uh-huh. right? I like to call it that. That's one of my favorite things to say is that you have to see yourself as a superhero. And if you can't, it's easier to fake it when you can do that. I do vi- ask my athletes to do vision boards and do other things to credit. Do you, so a lot of them won't, they have a hard time even seeing themselves as worthy or valuable. Mm-hmm. Um, do you think that's one of the key issues or the key issues? In your experience, it looks like it was, but what do you think about other folks and whether they're elite athletes or um, an age group athlete, are there differences or or where do you sort of start from when you deal with an athlete in that situation? Yeah. So I think, yeah, definitely you have to view yourself worthy and capable of the performances that you've set out to do. Otherwise it is so easy to crumble as soon as that like little pain monster says like, you're not strong enough to do it. You'll just cave to it unless you've already set out to say, I absolutely am strong enough to do it. I, I have the power to get through this. And how do you get them to see that? Cause I said, that's a little, yeah. ca- it looks like a little jump, but in reality for the athlete, it's like, the largest chasm. Yeah. And that is, that is, it's so hard. And I would say, so for me, it was my environment, like the people that I was surrounded by that did that for me. So I was fortunate enough to have great teammates, a great coach who pumped me up so much that at some point it was just like blasting in my face that I, I had to see it. Yeah. You're Um, a badass. You couldn't not see you were a badass. (laughs) But I would, I changed environments, right? Like when I moved to, to train in London after, um, when I was, when I, after I just missed out on the 2012 Olympics and I was thinking about, you know, trying to go through to 2016, I moved to London and I had a new coach and a new training environment and people didn't know me. They didn't know what I, where I came from. So I showed up as, you know, a, a 435 miler and a 948 steeplechaser. And I think people had this conception that I was this great, naturally talented athlete who'd been around for forever. But in my view, I was this athlete who was still relatively new to the sport, had not been around forever. My confidence was relatively 
fresh in some of my most recent achievements and they didn't understand the journey that I went on or how I ticked as an athlete and that tore down my confidence. So I, yeah. I went back to square one again. Because um, those were world-class athletes, world-class mm-hmm. coaches, world-class environment. And for anybody that doesn't know, the, the Great Britain's pressure cooker mm-hmm. is different than the U.S.'s. In mm-hmm. the U.S.'s, it all kind of happens at the national championship. Mm-hmm. And Great Britain, it's you're around all those competitors and all those people all the time. Mm-hmm. It's a smaller pool and yeah. and the, and very invasive coaching slash uh, support services and everything's right there. Yeah. And you were in Teddington, right? So you're yeah. like right there where all of that is yeah. happening. Yeah. <laughs> so I still, I had access to all of these resources. And I think you people just assumed that, yeah, I was just this high-performing athlete. Mm. And that's who I was. And to me, I was kind of a, a nerd that went to Rice. It was like super, you know, I just got finished my PhD. I wanted to study sports psychology. I happened to be a good runner and I loved it. And I felt different. And I don't know... It just took a long time for people to see that side of me. And I think because I didn't think they they knew who I was or what I came from, that it tore my confidence down. Mm-hmm. That I suddenly was like, oh, well, not – although I am – I've had performances that are elite, I am not an elite athlete because I was not bred in this system the way that they they think that maybe I was. So how did you jump over that? How did you – how did that change? Yeah. Uh, I mean, I had like my worst year ever yeah. and, um, and almost quit. And just, I got back to the basics of running. I think I started to over complicate what being a good runner was. And all I needed to do was just get back to the fundamentals of enjoying running, putting together a string of decent workouts that were not overly challenging, that were not complicated, that were not over my head and just see that, I could go from being kind of sick, injured, not performing well. I just needed a few weeks, and I actually got to a very, very good level of fitness in, in you like are six a freak to eight weeks. Yeah. You are a freak that way. And, and I, that, <laughs> I think sh- sh- seeing that, I remember, because at that point, I went, even though I was living in London, I went back to being coached by Jim, and he basically had me do nothing for a few weeks, and then I wasn't allowed to run with a heart rate over 150. And then he gave me like a three-week buildup to race a 1500, and I ran like 422. Hmm. And that in that moment, when we rehashed that experience, I then realized like, okay, you have, you, you have a lot of crazy talent because that's not something that a lot of people can do. And I started to rebuild that belief in what made me a good athlete. And so I think for all athletes, it's experiences that they have, but you can't just have the experiences. You have to go back and analyze them. And I and I don't think people spend a ton of time doing that. Reflection I think, doesn't yeah, happen. Yeah. yeah. And and so if you reflect on your journey, like what you've actually been through, what you've overcome, um, what you've been capable of, putting everything in perspective and saying, you know what? Like there aren't that many people who could kind of do what I what I've done in in the in the environment that I've done it. Uh, and you gotta make yourself feel a bit special. Yeah, I I think that's kind of well, that's hard for people. I mean, it's got to be really hard for the high school level, collegiate level athletes that you've worked with mm-hmm. in this regard, because their confidence is generally at that age is at a really low, right? Mm-hmm. They're not, their self-image, especially in the United States, I think we're just, we do a great job of educating our children, but we don't do a great job of preparing them to be great people. Mm-hmm. And so not that parents are doing not do, doing a bad job. It's just like not reflected on. Like when did anybody learn about Maslow's hierarchy in real life mm-hmm. instead of in a psychology class? Like when do we really, where, what tools do we provide for our young people mm-hmm. in junior high and high school and in college that say you can be a self-actualized human being? Mm-hmm. Like that's just a, that's just a, 
that's just a like a definition in a book rather than I mean you you know what a feeling is you've come across enough finish lines where the decisions and choices that you made in a race and in training created a result you wanted and in that moment those moments like when you qualified for the Olympic Games in Rio you know what self actualization you created that for yourself through mm-hmm. your own labors and works yes gratitude to all the people who helped you but you had to do it mm-hmm. when the gun went off between the time when the gun goes off and you come across the finish line there's only one human being doing that work mm-hmm. right so how do we build that in our young people and i think a lot of adults they're in a very similar place and is that sort of what a sports psychologist does or are you it too further far along in the process of their own competitive experience i'm really interested in this yeah. like worldview slash overall mental health of a human being versus the sports specific component uh-huh. so i work with on that issue of developing confidence in athletes a lot mm. uh, and because a lot of times you know you were talking about how you have this like ideal self and then you have your current self so i that's an example that i generally use in the first or second session with an athlete like where do you see yourself when you're firing on all cylinders and everything is going perfect and you have that ideal race that you are physically capable of um, and where are you now? And so typically people draw themselves like, and I put it on like a zero to a hundred scale. And lots of times people are anywhere from like 30% to 60% of their idealized self in terms of performance. And then I have them kind of outline some of the behaviors or some of the diff- what are some of the differences between the two people? And a lot of times the differences are mental, like, oh, this person has a ton of confidence or doesn't cave to fear or to pain in races. And whenever confidence comes up, you know, I talk about what are some ways to gain some confidence. And some people are so resistant to being pumped up by other people. So it's like you can tell them, like, your performances are really good. You're great. Well, no, it was really lucky. Like I, I don't, I won conference because just like the weather conditions favored me. Um, the good runners had a bad day and I got lucky and I'm like, okay, I'll give you one meet. Maybe, maybe, maybe I mean, I, and I don't even want to give you one meet. I'll give you one meet. You're lucky. What about that other, that other race that you won? Well, on that day, I didn't, I, I think I still got lucky because I was just feeling really good and, and I don't think I could re- recreate it. And when you go through some of these things, you just hope that eventually you poke a hole in that really resistant person. Um, But there are really hard cases like that. Mm -hmm. And then there are people who actually want to increase their confidence. They're coming to you and they they already can tell that that's going to help them. And those people are much easier to work with because you can give them specific things to do. Like, okay, so at the end of your training session today, I want you to write down three things that you did that are or like you hadn't been able to do before that you're going to add to your confidence bank. I want you to try and do three things in your next race that you haven't been able to do before, whether it's you always falter at that. So I work with a lot of high school kids. You always falter at that um, one and a half to two mile marker in a race. So I don't want you to worry about the next, the, the whole race. I want you to run that 800 meter portion of the race better than you've ever run it before. So that when you finish the race, you can say, you know what? I did something today I've never been able to do before. So to, to really identify specifically concretely achievements that they haven't done before because if you're doing things you've never done before then you start to feel like oh wow this is pretty awesome yeah you you're you're creating you're putting bricks in the wall uh-huh. of their fu- yeah. of their future self yeah. of the, that they'll always isn't it interesting too in that moment when you ask them just to break it down if it's far enough into the race they'll usually extend it significantly further than that mm-hmm. distance that you ask them to do it, right? They keep their shit together nearly to the finish. Yeah. I mean, their their bugaboo will show up on their shoulder at some point in time, right? <laughs> Telling them all the terrible things. But it's amazing to see them, oh, they get enough feedback loop 
positive feedback loop that things change. Mm-hmm. So mm-hmm. talk about, about that a little bit. We The last podcast I did, I talked about default scripts and the sort of scripting that people do in their own, between their ear, how they are creating a story mm-hmm. that they either were born with, were inherited, or created themselves. And they don't see it running in their background, right? They're just, it's just going on in their head. I can't close. So what you just said, mm-hmm. like, I can't do this. I can't do that. I can't do this. Mm-hmm. How do you, what suggestions do you make to people mm-hmm. to number one, see that kind of scripting going on, that kind of experience? And then number two, um, what they can do to change it. Mm-hmm. So yeah, I ask athletes, you know, what, what is that voice in your head saying? Like, what are some of the things that go through your head? And if they're not aware, I just say, you know, next time, like after the race, write down some of the thoughts. And, um, you know, what's very, very common is athletes, they make a very thorough race plan and they are thinking things like, okay, no matter whenever the break happens, you're going to go with the break at a mile, you're going to pick up the pace. You're going to close at the end. And then they say, you know, whenever I get in the race, uh, there's this voice. It's like, you, you want to do it, but then there's this other voice. It's like, no, you can't do it. You're too tired. You're not, it's not that big of a deal. Just let the people go. You'll just finish the race. And just the kind of that negative self-talk just takes over. Um, and so when I want, when people go into races, right. So you try to transfer then to thinking positive thoughts. And at first, uh, when I was early on working as a sports psychology professional, I was really focused on just getting people to transfer what they were saying in terms of their negative thoughts into positive thoughts. And then I realized, you know what, that's not really working because those negative thoughts are still going on. They're still there no matter – even if you have a positive thought. That, it's the default. Yeah, yeah. The default is a negative thought. <laughs> so now – and this has been much more effective for – for people that athletes that I've worked with. Now I say, let's go through all the negative thoughts that are going to come up Mm. in the race. So when are you going to get that first, like, Oh shit, you've made goals and you're not going to get them today. You cannot do it. You are too tired. Um, when is that thought going to come up? When is the thought going to come up of, Oh, you're not even halfway through and it's just going to get exponentially worse. And when is the thought like you're going to get out kicked by everybody who's better than you. So why are you even trying? So we kind of outline a, a series of, of the neg- the common negative self-talk that comes up in their races. And we just make answers. Um, so we create like, what's the dialogue going to be like. And then instead of having to that like decision-making process in races where they, you know, they have a goal and this negative thought comes up and they like, are like, okay, I don't know how to fight it. I don't know what to do. They have an answer immediately and they can almost, they can respond and they can be like, Hey, like I knew you were going to show up and I knew you were going to be here. And actually I've already created an answer for you. And today I'm not going to let you slow me down. Mm. I'm not going to let you stop my kick. Um, and for athletes, they say it's, it's a little bit more empowering. Uh, they're not, their expectations are more on point. Mm. And I feel like a lot of times when athletes have these expectations that they set this race plan and they made all these positive goals for the race. And then they realize in the race, like, Oh crap, my expectations are not being met. That's when things spiral. But if you can set your expectations to like expect the negative self-talk and have already created an answer, then you're in a little bit of a better spot. It's not as, it's not as shocking. Yeah. People are competitive especially Americans, right? We're really competitive. So if you can succeed, if you can see a little bit of success mm-hmm. and get that ball rolling a little bit, most people will pick it up and run with it a good while. They just, a lot of times they don't even get the chance to get that ball rolling mm-hmm. in a positive way. And I think that's an interesting, I see that all the time with the adult athletes that I work with. 
how competitive they really are at the core and they don't think that they are, Mm -hmm. but it's like, we're already kind of conditioned to want to do our best. And when I mean by competitive, I don't really mean the sport that I, I work with a lot of marathoners now and people running half marathons and five Ks and 10 Ks, and they're more concerned with what's going on with the backside of their name, right? They're not worried about the number at the front of their name, Mm -hmm. their place. They're Mm -hmm. worried about the number at the backside of their name, which Mm -hmm. is their time. Mm -hmm. Like, and they're competing against themselves way more than they are necessarily with the person next to them. They may have a couple of nemesis out there that they're that they want to beat, but mm-hmm. more often than not, that competitive zeal has to come from doing their best mm-hmm. and having their best effort, which you can get them turned to that competitive side. Mm-hmm. It can make a difference. What do you think the most what's sort of the lowest lowest hanging fruit? that Mm -hmm. an athlete can work on no matter where they're at, like one or two things that maybe somebody you could say, you know, my guess is 99% of the people listening to this podcast are doing this and this wrong or could look at it in a different way. Is there things that way or is it more, I kind of got to know the person, I've got to work through their own, their issues on a one-on-one basis. Yeah. So I I am a firm believer that there are some common problems, but athletes conceptualize those problems in very, very Mm -hmm. different ways. Um, So some athletes... You know, it's like nervousness, anxiety. Um, a lot of athletes, it's uh, that middle of the race. They, oh, no matter what goals they have, they're not going to achieve them. Um, but for me, the the biggest thing for athletes to start helping themselves is to have some just the self awareness of what what does the mind do to me when I'm running. Mm. And as long as they can identify that they are having certain thoughts that are impacting them, maybe sometimes positively and sometimes negatively, and they can make that connection, then they can start making improvements. So you're you're working on their cognitive, getting them to understand what's going on cognitively rather than worldview, big, giant, scary, who am I as a human being issue. Yes. You break it down to the, this is what's happening in your brain. Uh-huh. And or mind, right? Yeah. Do you break it down to them from a sort of not? I would, you're probably not doing neurobiology with them, but you're probably doing some kind of. This is how thoughts work in your head. And mm-hmm. so, how do you walk through that with people? So, I I was working with. Um, I'll give you since you work a lot with marathoners. I was working with a marathoner recently, and she had been. Uh, so I work with across a range of marathoners. This marathoner had been trying to break five hours and she had lined up for 13 or 14 marathons and she had run in between 5.06 and 5.12 wow. every time. And she said, you know what? I finally decided that maybe it's maybe it's psychological. So we started going through. Maybe. Yeah. Yeah. So she's like, so I decided I would come and see you because I put a lot of time and a lot of effort into this. And sometimes with those athletes, when they're trying to, you know, break five hours or even some athletes are trying to break six hours or four hours, they think why, like they feel a little bit strange coming to see a sports psychologist. And I believe me, they're listening to us right now. Yeah. And I I tell them, I tell them you put just as much time into this as any other serious athlete, this is a like, huge portion of your life and is very central to how you view yourself. And this has been bugging you for years. You absolutely deserve mm. to come and talk to somebody about the mental side of, of that process. Um, and, you know, as soon as we start talking about some of the things that this athlete is doing to themselves in the middle of races, I'm like, oh my gosh, it's like, to me, it's like clear as day. Um, you know, we talk about anything. She's like, well, you know, always like mile 15 to 21 are just always awful. And so I know as soon as I hit mile 15, things are just going to spiral out of control. And because I'm anticipating that I look at my watch at mile 15 and then I recognize it's my slowest mile ever. And then it just spirals out of control. And so in my head, I'm thinking there's so many things you can do to not make that happen. And we can experiment with some of these things, or you can just start doing them like 
why don't you not look at your watch at mile 15? Or why don't you, instead of thinking about running a marathon, like I was giving that example of the high school runner before, why don't you run mile 15 to 21? Like, why don't you make those your, your fastest miles? Why don't you focus on those miles in the marathon? So maybe, maybe you don't break five hours in your next marathon, but at least you can look back and you can have confidence that you can run those six miles of the race better. And then you can build from that. Um, and we talked through a lot of things and ultimately they were, there are so many little things mentally that people are doing to themselves. Uh, specifically like if you want to break five hours, do you run with the five hour pace group from the beginning or do you start behind them and use them as motivation to catch them? Or do you start ahead of them and run with fear? Um, and like maybe there are different things that work with different athletes, but that's where talking to the athlete one-on-one, I feel like uh, with my background, I can give them the best advice. So it's very rare that people, there are some athletes that run great with that sense of fear that someone's coming to chase them, but a lot of athletes run best when yeah. they are chasing down their goals. So just kind of visually changing where they're positioning themselves on the start line. There's so many little things. I feel like when you talk to somebody with a sports psychology background, you can add, um, add to your marathon training repertoire. Yeah. And it, it's amazing too, how much that then plays into the rest of their life. Mm-hmm. Like that, that's the really cool thing to see. I'm not a sports psychologist, but I play one on TV. Right? <laughs> that, I think we'll talk about that. And I'll ask you that question in a second, but coaches, are all doing some level of a sports psychology because mm-hmm. you're dealing with a human being that and you're trying to optimize their performance and you can't and they've got a head and they're going to use their brain and they're going to mm-hmm. use their mind to mm-hmm. to do that and so few coaches do but when you see them have that experience and you can see them then pull it back into um, challenges they're having in their relationships or challenges they just recognize if I break something down to its constituent points, find the places that I have issues and overcome one or two of those, mm-hmm. then I get the ball rolling. Mm-hmm. And, and that's, yeah, that's the whole, that's the whole point is some people think that everything with the entire marathon race is wrong and they can't get anything right. And it's really just a couple of things each week. And yeah, that ball gets rolling and everything goes the right direction. I think also our sport the sport of distance running, anything, you know, from a 5k on is really unique as well in the sense that there's these narratives that we've heard. Everyone reads runner's world Mm -hmm. and there's a way to run the marathon, right? Mm -hmm. And there's a way to do it. And you, you know, you either, there's two ways you can either go out and die or negative split. Well, you, there's a whole lot of ways to go out and die. And there's a whole lot of ways to negative split. And I'm sure that unconventional suggestion that you may or may not have made within the case with this woman, but you know, to run hard from 15 to 21, Mm -hmm. She gets through that. Even if it fails from 21 to 26.2, she's walked away with that win Mm -hmm. that she can bring to the 14th race that she runs. Mm -hmm. And the 15th race, she might be able to go all the way and and go even further. So Mm -hmm. um, you you talked about fear a little bit. And Mm -hmm. this is something I've always conceptually had a challenge with. And hopefully you can clear it up for me. Mm -hmm. What's the difference between fear of failure Mm -hmm. and fear of success? Mm-hmm. As a, in my experience, it seems like they're kissing cousins. They're mm-hmm. so similar that even the concept, like I would have athletes I would work with and I'd say, is this a fear of failure or is this a fear of success? Is there a way, what is the difference between them and is there a way to sort of delineate that or mm-hmm. determine that? Because they're, they're, they're big, but people confuse them. I think a lot of more people think that they might, there's more fear of success out there than people realize, I mm-hmm. think is my argument. Tell okay. me if I'm wrong or not. Okay. Right? <laughs> okay. Well, first of all, the, just the concept. I like to talk about the concept of fear in athletes of of racing in general. Because um, one of the number one questions that I get from 
athletes is how do I get rid of this fear, whether it's success or failure. And I'm always startled because I'm always telling them like, you know, fear is a basic human emotion. You're absolutely not going to get rid of this fear, Hmm. but you can change how you are thinking about it or how that fear motivates you. Um, And that's what I think with all emotions, you know, people want to wiggle out of these uncomfortable emotions and they don't want to feel them. But I'm like, there is an evolutionary like basis for these basic human Hmm. emotions. You will feel them and there's no wiggling your way out of them. There is a way to shift your focus away from them in high performing moments. Um, or to recognize them, but to, to not try to control them or block them out. Uh, that's, that's crucial. Yes. Yeah. yeah. So I think, I think that's definitely crucial. And then in terms of fear of failure and fear of success, you know, I'm probably one of those examples. So I definitely hear about more fear of failure um, from athletes, but I think it's because I'm working with a younger, younger mm. population potentially. And then I also think I'm slightly biased in this regard because when you talk about that, I think as an athlete, I had a lot of fear of success Mm -hmm. and that held me back maybe for me even more so than fear of failure uh because i (laughs) just tell me now you tell me you can play the role of sports psychologist here (laughs) um when i think about people call me i am not a technical term (laughs) when i think of people with uh when I think about fear of success, I, I related to my own career because I had so many other things that I was doing while I was running. And I think I was running just below that cut, like just below those times that it's still logical for me to um, work as a sports psychology professional, to do consulting projects, to teach, to to guest lecture, um, to continue to do research related to my PhD. And I think there was, if I would have run maybe like a, a couple of seconds faster, I may have felt the need to actually call myself a full-time professional Mm. athlete and identified as a runner. And that would be really, really, really scary. Um, So to me, there was some some fear of success of what that would mean to have that great performance and then what would come out of, what what expectations would come out of that. Yeah, Uh, I think just your description of that will help people realize that there are, they are thinking that it's a fear of failure, mm -hmm. but what it really is, is the, the fear of success is that you won't live up to the standard that you now set, mm-hmm. which then becomes a fear, which then attendantly becomes a fear of failure mm-hmm. next. But mm-hmm. you have this thing holding you back, which is if I have that success, mm-hmm. then in the future, I will have a fear of failure because I've now become, and that's why yeah. I always okay. laugh about this yeah. particular topic because it's like, it's all fear of failure, but a lot of times it comes from people aren't recognizing that if I run under three hours for a marathon, then the next time I go out for a marathon, I'm going to need to run under three hours. Uh And everybody around me knows I've done that. So Uh then I'm going to have that pressure. And that's going on as a subconscious and at a subconscious level Uh at a non, not front of mind. And, uh, I love it when athletes bring that to me because then I just under train them, Uh always under train them. And on race day, they feel great. They outperform and now they're stuck. (laughs) (laughs) now they're now they're stuck dealing with the fact that they're a sub three hour sub four hour marathoner right so i trick them a little bit with it but it's a lot easier to do that in a group environment Mm -hmm. you know a lot of the way that you worked as an athlete the way you and i worked together the way you worked with coach bevan the way you're working with other young athletes and adult athletes that you're working with now it's on a one-on-one basis Mm -hmm. and a lot of people don't realize that what goes on in a sport what goes on between in your between your ears is also impacted by your environment. Mm -hmm. And how much does environment have to play with this? Because I think a lot of people are in environments that are generally negative, Mm -hmm. where the training group that you're running with or the people in your group are, you know, they're Debbie Downers. Or they may be seemingly positive 
people with successful careers, but they're talking negative all the time. What Talk a little bit about environment and where you may have seen environment play roles in an athlete. Because I think this is something that I noticed over many years, both in the collegiate environment and a post-collegiate environment. And then when I moved to the adult environment, I thought, oh, it's not there because these are all well-adjusted adult people. No, mm-hmm. everybody, we're all, no. <laughs> there's no. nothing new under the sun. <laughs> I feel like with the well-adjusted adult people, running becomes the outlet for every yes. grievance they have in their life. And it, be, it can become a show of um, who's had the worst week, um, so who's, who's got the hardest schedule trying to fit their runs in. Uh, that's definitely what I see with that older population. Um and yeah, that, that is really, really a, a Debbie Downer. You don't want to be talking about all of the bad things. You know, you, running should be that time where you're escaped. You've managed to escape from a lot of your, your obligations uh, outside of what you're doing in terms of putting one foot in front of the other and creating that environment where it is an opportunity for people to, to get some mindfulness space is really good for performance. And that's the the team when i was at rice that that environment was a huge part of our performance so having that you know we show up for practice we are super excited to see each other where we were so so positive and that showed in every single performance and not only what to me it's not only like the being negative or being positive in a training environment but it's that element of support um Mm. And I, and, you know, you, you think again with adult groups that they get rid of that, you know, child, child, childish competitiveness, but it it gets worse. It gets worse still. Um, And in college, you know, when I'll never forget when I had a teammate, Becky Wade, when she came around me in a race, she actually grabbed my hand and pulled me with her. And all I needed was somebody to get me over a hump of a hard spot in a race. And I ended up having one of my best races ever. Um, and in no matter what, in like whatever training group somebody is, there can develop a pecking order in that training group. And that pecking order to me is so dangerous. If athletes go into races expecting to be in certain places, um, that feeds into their mentality of how they view their performances as a fixed entity. And as soon as you lose part of that growth mindset and how you can perform, that is very, very negative. Uh, And you see, I see that a lot in high school teams and college teams and even in um, professional teams. And yeah, just even runners who are out there running on their own um, as a hobby outside of work, they've created a pecking order in their training group. And, and that is the most negative thing to me. Yeah, I think that's where incredible leaders come to play. Mm-hmm. Like Coach Bevan did not encourage that. He encouraged great performance, but mm-hmm. he also encouraged a recognition of you had sisters, mm-hmm. right? It was beyond, it was beyond just your performance. Mm-hmm. It was the, and even in track where your individual performance, you guys weren't, usually weren't in, in cross country you guys were always at the top of the podium always in a place to be competing at 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 to, they were trying to beat this snot out of my teams that's for sure <laughs> and we were trying to beat the snot out of your teams but you know when you get to the when you get to other level and even in college age kids in high in a in track it's it's just your race uh-huh. and you you weren't really on a team that was going to win the conference championship or the national championship so it's like it's easy, it, it's easy for people to start judging themselves. You yeah. know, one of the things I heard Jenny Simpson say the other day at World Championships when somebody was asking her about an athlete who was in her race who had an incredible performance, and she quoted Theodore Roosevelt's quote of, 
comparison is the thief of joy. Uh And I heard that quote and I I got goosebumps all over because it's the space that so many people operate in and it takes a good leadership, a good leader to be in a, to, to teach an athlete that that's not the space Mm -hmm. that they need to occupy. And number two, that there's an environment where there's love and support so that you don't have to do that. Mm -hmm. Right. You, you knew the strengths of each person. You probably still didn't like it when Becky beat you Mm -hmm. because you're a competitive person, Mm -hmm. but you recognized that had nothing to do with you, who you were as a human being and who that, who she was as a human being. And there's a lot of environments that aren't Mm -hmm. that good. And honestly, in the long run, getting beat by there's nothing more more motivating than getting beat by a teammate. Mm-hmm. And so, if you are one of those people listening to this who's always running behind somebody because you think that they're better than you, you're doing them a disservice because the moment you go around them, you elevate their game, which elevates your game, and that spirals. And th- in really successful teams, that's what you see. You see those people; they're constantly gunning down their teammates in a positive way to to bring around their performances and uh competitive people respond to those types of experiences and that's where you know you get you start to to really break down um some you get some great performances i had an athlete tell me a couple months ago i had said to them at at when they were getting ready to go to the starting line to look at their competitors the people next to them on the starting line as allies Mm -hmm. and that they were Number one, all here for the same reason. Mm-hmm. They closed these roads. You paid your entry fee, but somebody had to close these roads. Somebody's out there volunteering on this course for you. People are out there cheering voluntarily. Uh-huh. Like this is not just you. Yeah. Like you're a part of something bigger. There's a gratitude piece there. There's also the recognition of of doing this together. And I remember that athlete came back and said, I, you know, I got to a certain point and I felt this sense of love and connection in a space that I've always been so like cut their head off and shit down their throats. Mm-hmm. You know, it's, it, it's cool to see that. Um, so one, you know, the name of this podcast is running on purpose mm-hmm. and I spend a lot of time, I used, I do spend a lot of time thinking about purpose mm-hmm. and sort of big picture worldview and where does you, where do you think that stuff sits in, mm-hmm. um, not just, I don't want to say an athlete's mentality because you're going to say, well, that's obvious. That's the ground of everything. But when you're working with people, when they do you think that they come in with an understanding of that? Or, or do you think that that's a place that's useful for people to start doing work? And what suggestions would you make to get started there? Like how would you tell them to start? Because it's such a big, scary mm-hmm. thing to mm-hmm. talk about, you know, who you are as a human being or what your purpose is in your running that mm-hmm. – I found when I started talking about that, people get really uncomfortable and they're wanting to know the little the little tips to do this and that, but don't want to they want to shy away a bit from the bigger picture. Mm-hmm. What are your thoughts on that? Mm-hmm. Well, that? And that question is different depending on age group for me. So I think young people, you know, their prefrontal cortex isn't even yeah. fully developed. So yeah. they're playing. Yeah, yeah, they're playing. And, and you keep that, it play. Yeah, and that's fine. And and to, to totally stay like that. And then there's a, a, a point in college where you're, you have so many competitions coming up and you're in this environment that it just kind of, it happens for you without you thinking much about it. You're, you're shuttled to meets, your spikes show up on your doorstep, you're put in a uniform. Um, your purpose is, is to be there and to fulfill your role to the team. And then there's the kind of on your own period where, whether you're a professional or whether you're a recreational runner, and that's where the purpose I think becomes very, very central and very easy to lose at different points in, um, in a person's career. So if you are struggling with purpose or if purpose makes you uncomfortable, I always think the best 
place to start is to think about how are you viewed as a human? And so like when I have people come in here who are, uh, you know, trying to qualify for, for Boston or run, um, break a certain barrier in a marathon, they'll often talk about how successful they are in their jobs, how motivated they are for work, how they would never, you know, start a project and then give up effort halfway or lose sight of their goals in um, their organizational environment. But that's not how they are when they're running they've had this, you know, had this fitness goal or they have this race goal and they just can't seem to achieve it. And they always give up and something bad always happens to them. And it's, it's their fault. And why are they doing this? And immediately when they start having that discussion, I just think you've like lost sight of who you are when you become a runner. So you need to Mm -hmm. channel your values, how you view yourself in your professional environment. And you need to carry those, that same confidence and that same attitude into your running environment. You're not changing who you are. You're changing the skills that you're using. Um, but fundamentally your values are your values. So if you're about to drop out in a race, think, would you ever like just say, I don't want to do this project for work. It's just, I would rather go to bed and watch Netflix. I'm not going to take my kid to school. Yeah. Yeah. Like you absolutely (laughs) wouldn't. It's not fundamentally who you are as a person. And sometimes reflecting like, how does this action line up on paper on who I think I am? And if there's that disagreement between the action that you're about to engage in and how you view yourself, then it makes you really uncomfortable. And you're going to be more likely to be like, you know what? I need to stick my head down. I need to get through this because that makes me feel uncomfortable. So I think that's definitely a starting point. And then Throughout somebody's career, like I always think I would always lose sight as, of purpose as my performances started getting better and better because I just kept on thinking like, okay, well now it's easy. I'm super fit. Everything's getting better. It's just gonna, I'm just gonna get better exponentially and not have to worry about this anymore. So purpose is out of the window. It's all about race strategy, fitness. Um, yeah, race strategy and fitness are key. And then as soon as you get into the middle of a race and you're like, <laughs> this is really, really hard and I've now not focused on my purpose, it's impossible to run. It is, yeah. So you go through iterations of what is your purpose and it, like, I think it varies based on your performance levels, where you're at in, in your running, in your ideal running self. Like, Did you have challenges spectrum. with that in your career? Yeah. And how did you, how did you address them? And, and not necessarily in a specific sense, but mm-hmm. you, you said you had to deal with them in a couple of different ways. It mm-hmm. wasn't always just this one thing mm-hmm. that it, it permutated, changed, it mutated in ways that you had to stay on your feet and stay on your toes to work on. Mm-hmm. And what give us a little sense of that. I think that this is something that people will really relate to because mm-hmm. they're hearing advice from folks or reading books about these topics, but not necessarily getting a chance to hear this elite athlete who mm-hmm. really frankly, your highs were so high and your I, w- I went through some of these with you. Your mm-hmm. lows were so low. Mm-hmm. I don't think that most people could would have a very easy time dealing with the kind of lows that you had. Uh-huh. And some of them were just flat out shit sandwich races. Yeah. I mean, we, we, we know you'd had some races where it was like, this is not Lenny Waite. Yeah. Like, and, and it wasn't that you weren't fit enough. Something else happened. So mm-hmm. give us just a little bit of an idea about the, what that is as an athlete. And then now as you're in this world professionally, does that, does your experience help you with that? And, mm-hmm. and if it does, what kind of feedback do you give to people that, I like to call it the dark night, you know, St. John's of the cross is dark night of the soul. Like people, like at least when I was a collegiate athlete, a post-collegiate athlete and a collegiate athlete, that's what it felt like. It was existential dread. It was like, I I did not understand why I had a poor performance Mm -hmm. and you had a lot on the line. Yeah. 
And a lot of people who you felt responsible to. Yeah. Yeah. So then that was the responsibility to other people is a whole nother thing. That was yeah. always something that I felt in my, in my career. So whenever I would have a bad race, it was generally because in the middle of the race, I would say, what the fuck am I doing mm. out here? Because, and, and I would think to myself, like, you have a degree from Rice, you have a PhD, you could be making six figures a year. Why are you out here in the middle of some tiny, shitty European city in a, in a thunderstorm rooming with somebody who doesn't speak English with, you know, you don't have your, you're away from your dog, you're away from your fiance, you're away from your family and you're running shit. This is so stupid. Why are you doing this? And so I would walk away from those races and I would realize like, you've completely lost sight of your purpose. Like Mm -hmm. you have no idea why you're even here anymore. And there were times during that where I would think, Maybe you need to quit. And whenever I would say that, um, I think I would be lucky enough to be around somebody like you or somebody like Jim who would say, you know, absolutely not. You just have to find out why you're doing it. You're not doing it. Like in college, you're doing it maybe to see how good you were and because you enjoyed it and because you're on the team. And now, yeah, you have lots of alternatives of other things you could be doing, which was what I always struggled with. But I would then create a story of like how much more interesting is a life Hmm. when you're going through all of these struggles and you're, and that's when I started creating this like script for myself of like one day you were going to help athletes who are going through this and you're going through this for a reason. And the reason you are going through this is to share these stories and to have commonalities with people who are going to have to eat the same shit sandwich that you're eating right now. And you are going to motivate little girls and you are going to show people that they can run. Yeah. Even if they only, they think they are only going to run 520 for the mile in high school there, they can still be Olympians. And I would start creating this really powerful narrative around that. Um, and I would, I would shift my purpose, uh, towards thinking about how it would help me in the future, what type of story I'm telling, how would, how I'm building this armor to give back to people, um, at the, maybe in the next phase of my career. And then there are other moments, you know, where you're competing against um, drug cheats. And that is a whole another thing. I will never forget when I was in the call room at Rio and they were calling athletes and there was one athlete um, who they kept on calling and we were all like, dude, she's not coming. She tested positive for drugs. Like, (laughs) and for me, that's so hard because it was just such a firm reminder that I was not competing on a level playing field. And that feeling of unfairness like distracted me in that moment. And it made me think like, why are you doing this? There's so many people who are doing this and cheating and you're like doing this and trying to work and like not, you're not making any money doing this. You're doing this purely for passion purposes, but nobody cares. And other, everybody's, and you create this like sob story for yourself. And I remember after that, I had to like recreate my purpose of I'm, I'm doing it to show that it can be done a different way. And also because I love it. Like it's given me all of the things that it gave me, like the, the friend groups and, and everything else. So there, yeah, there are multiple times. So I had to like give myself that pep talk. Humans are meaning making machines. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And I think that that's, when we talk about the word purpose, it gets weird in people's heads because that seems like a, it's not something we talk about in our day-to-day lives, right? Or not something front of spade, front of mind. But if I say meaning, almost everybody knows that right you listen to an amazing song you see a great movie 
there's something moving in you, right? I call it soul. That's that's where soul is, whatever. You can't touch it. You can't feel it. But I argue you can't touch mind either. Like mm-hmm. it, We can get a kind of meta on all of that stuff too. But ultimately, like I do think that that's where you can take – you were basically saying this means something mm-hmm. when it when in the race you thought it didn't mean anything mm-hmm. and you were able to find meaning. And I think that's useful for our listeners to be – Maybe purpose isn't the right word. Maybe mm-hmm. meaning and why it matters to you. And you can look at the people closest to you mm-hmm. and then the people you might be impacting later, mm-hmm. like you did in your case. It can make a huge difference. I mean, I think the biggest, I, I think still the biggest nightmare is to show up in Olympic Games unable to walk, which yeah. is like a nightmare that I lived. Yeah. You, um, did, you had a broken foot. <laughs> yeah. And I will. And he ran the the, the <laughs> first the first round of the Olympic Games with a broken foot. And I will, <laughs> and finished. Yeah. Yeah. And I remember sitting in the training camp and just feeling so sorry for myself and thinking, How did you train your entire life to make an Olympic Games to show up injured? Like unable to even like hang out at training camp and now you have all this family coming over. It was just this it was the worst feeling in the world. Um and now I tell the story and I've managed to create positive meaning out mm-hmm. of it. Because it it really it has showed me a lot. I mean, it, it's taught me a lot about that fine line between uh, getting ready to compete on the world stage and and pushing the edge. And you know, life hands us hard things to to see how we deal with them. And like, I can share that story with other people who feel like they're in a, a lonely, dark place when they're injured at a championships. And now, when I watch you know athletes get injured at a world championships or an Olympic games, I feel like I mean. I, I know what that's like and I know they'll get through it. And without having that personal experience, I wouldn't be able to identify with that. So I feel like it's just given me a broader hmm. range of experiences to share with people to help them in the future. And when I tell that story, I feel like Matt, my husband is like, man, you had done such a good job of spinning that, like that worst <laughs> experience of your life. Like you make it sound like pretty yeah. positive. And I'm like, well, what else are you going to do? Right. That's <laughs> our, what are we are meaning making machines yeah. and, we always, yeah. I mean, one of the greatest books ever written is Man's Search for Meaning, and it was written out of the most terrible situation. That Yeah. I read that book. So I read that book around that time because I'd read it before, and I knew, and that was where I drew some of that inspiration of like, I mean, there are there are there are obviously worse things showing up to Olympic Games with a with a broken foot, but in terms of like that athletic boundary, that is really bad. But um, yeah, that book was a good reminder that there is meaning in everything. So before we finish here, you brought the topic of doping up. So uh-huh. I'm gonna poke I'm gonna poke you a little bit, and but I'm gonna take it a little bit of a different direction than maybe our listeners might think because. I asked you this question beforehand, which is how do you – you had to go through this process of standing on the starting line and, or being re- getting ready to stand on a starting line at an Olympic Games mm-hmm. and having the rug pulled out from under you or the idea that somebody has cheated, that, mm-hmm. that how many people on your starting line and how many people on multiple starting lines. But we've got young people who are growing up in our sport, mm-hmm. some of whom you're working with will be future Olympians potentially. Mm-hmm. How do you – do you hear them talk about that? Do you think they think about that? Do, what what suggestions would you make to someone who who might be either a young person or even someone who's trying to compete at a national or international level? Because this this issue is not one that's relegated just to um, the 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 elite of the elite, right? So, how do you deal with meaning? And when we're in a scenario where a level playing field is hard, you can't. It's not 
I mean, in my opinion, it, it there's no way to level the playing field. But that's another argument for another day. I don't really want to go down that road because there's we're not going to solve it here at your in your office in Houston, mm-hmm. right? But we can do is to turn it a little bit of a way and say Alvaro Zalazar gets a a four year doping ban, and I know people are going to turn away and say our sport is not relevant and it doesn't matter. Mm-hmm. It re- really frustrates me because the NFL and the NBA and the Major League Baseball here are there. It's you know somebody gets tested for a specifically banned substance and they get four game suspension. And we're talking about a coach getting a four years ban for something that really on the, on the outside is a, is a small, it looks like what you saw to got him for. It was small. Mm-hmm. You and I both know that there's a giant, giant elephant underneath that table, mm-hmm. right? We're, we're, we're relatively confident that there's, there's major issues there, but how do we deal with the attendant, fandom people being fans people being competing in this what do you have any suggestions for folks from a from a mental perspective of how to take this information and you know i've been a big alberto fan all my life as a young boy he was a competitive hero i mean he was a competitive hero of mine and as a coach i'll always see him as one of the best coaches even though his his he can't be because of what he did to his athletes right that's terrible but there's this conflict how do you resolve how do we resolve that or do we, or do we just have to live with this complicated world we're in? Yeah, I think that's again where like meaning and morality come become part of the equation. And they've done a lot of research to see what what deters athletes from taking drugs. And a lot, I mean, a lot of it honestly has to do with how you were parented. So, what kind of values did your parents instill in you when you were a child? Why are you doing sports? How did they make how did they view sports and was it a all or nothing? Like, did you have to be good or else? Um, was it cutthroat? Was it all that mattered? And if your identity is only tied up in that one sporting performance, like I think if you maybe look at some athletes who have been caught for doping, that became who they were at a very, very young age. And it defined their personality from maybe when they were a teenager or maybe even before that. Mm. Um, and, and because of that, they felt potentially pushed to, to have to do something to continue to be the person that other people think that think they are like to, to be that successful champion. Um, and so for, yeah, for, for parents of athletes or for young people, if your, your identity should never be tied up in, in one thing, I think, yes, to be great at sports, you have to, be fully invested, but you also have to be a human being who is seen to be good at other things uh, and to understand that you were you were more than that one thing. And people who are able to view themselves as not only an athlete, but maybe also a friend and a sister and somebody who has a passion for music and those um, and just have other areas they can draw on, I, they're less inclined to go down that dark alley of drugs are the only way for me to be who I think I'm supposed to be. Uh, And then from the athlete perspective, you know, you just, you have to realize that you create meaning attached to your performances. And I think there are are examples of amazing athletes who are clean um, that children can draw inspiration on and that young people can have hope in and that spectators can enjoy to watch. Now that gets really complicated because I have to say like at the most recent world championships, I had people texting me all the time. Do you think like so-and-so is on drugs? They ran so fast. And there's a lot of people who I don't think are on drugs that are running really fast that have absolutely dedicated their lifestyle to getting better and are 100% in and they are hitting 
all of their training perfectly. They're getting good sleep. They're invested. They have the right um, environment and they are able to achieve those performances. And, and I hate getting asked that question because like, yeah, I don't know, but I would like to hope that yes, some athletes are doing it the right way, but a lot of athletes are doing it the And the we wrong don't, way. and we're never going to know. I no. mean, right. We, we have two choices. We can just say everything is legal, mm-hmm. right? You can do anything you want to. Well, Good yeah, luck with that. I mean, I hate that. So but, I would but say. They could, <laughs> yeah, yeah. But they could. Yeah. Right? And then the other option is to put real teeth to things, yeah. right? How do you make real teeth? There's, an, I heard someone make an argument recently. Well, why does Alberto get a four-year ban? Shouldn't he just, we need, like, we need to cut people's heads off, mm-hmm. right? I mean, and maybe it's more nuanced than that. In this case, they didn't have a lot mm-hmm. on him to be able to make any bigger thing mm-hmm. with in that case. But yeah. there are... You know, it's, I, I think I take a lot of, um, you know, I I have spent a good bit of time listening to and reading Kara Goucher's comments post uh, this re- revelation of what, of what has gone on with all these years of this investigation and the courage for her to stand up and to take those, um, those hits. She took a lot of hits. Nike's not an easy company to go head to head against, and she was doing it all by herself. She had, she had good sponsors to help her, but it was tough. And I think it'll be interesting to see how this plays out over the long haul. But I guess mostly what I wanted to talk about was, like you said, meaning is the crucial piece here. And if you're a fan, stay a fan. You know, I hate that people say I don't want to watch your sport, and I'm yeah. like, but you're going to watch basketball, and I guarantee you they're doing. I mean, I, I don't know what to tell you about that, right? Like that to me is like. I wish we could make it clean, but in all the way clean, all the way. But until we have, we don't have money. Like there's not a, there's, and a lot of these people, I mean, you want to say something about it. Let's just, I know you can't talk about this because you were specifically work for USATF in some areas. And so that you have knowledge about athletes and athlete scenarios that you can't share with folks. But say, say someone like a, like a Jordan has said, no matter what, is she going to be in a position now where people are just going to assume that she's done something wrong when we don't know? And mm-hmm. so it's both sides. It's like, do you assume and you don't assume? And I just hate that for our sport. To me, that's the biggest, that's the heart, the hardest part of this. Like when I first announced it, I was like, this is terrible. Good that we've got something on this long-term scenario that's been going on and we've been hearing about for a long time and we know is been sketchy, but does that mean that all these other athletes? And it's easy for us to say, well, see, Thon Hassan ran a 351 and she ran a 357 at the end of a 10,000, but she's in the same training group with the same coach as Jordan Hesse. We're not going to, you know, it's like, how do you, where do we, where do you go with that? I don't know. I'm, I don't know that you need to answer yeah. if you don't want to. I would love to hear yeah, your, your I, point of view on it, but. I do think that now athlete, like the, the new thing, especially with track and field athletes, uh, you know, some of the athletes you're talking about is social media becomes a central part of their job. They are now a public figure. Mm. People follow them. People comment on them. People know who their coaches are, who they they may even know who their sports psychologist is. They know a lot about um, that public figure. And it's almost the athlete's responsibility to give to the public to make themselves popular. Uh, And so I just, I would just encourage athletes that they are somewhat responsible for, for putting themselves in the right environment. And if they want to, avoid those allegations, then they need to do, they need to do their research. They need to take responsibility for where they're placing themselves in the sport, which is a hard thing for great athletes because great athletes are really, really good rule followers. Hmm. And that's where I start thinking like a lot of times 
I have sympathy for athletes who have received doping bans because I I think that um, athletes who are really really talented are are good at doing exactly what their coach tells them, exactly what their physical therapist tells them, exactly what their doctor tells them without asking questions, which is one of the reasons they are so good because they, they don't think they just perform. And when you start thinking about maybe they're in the room with a slightly unethical doctor or slightly unethical coach or slightly unethical therapist who puts this idea in their head and they're told that it will absolutely make them better if they want to win an Olympic medal or if they want to achieve their goals is what they have to do. They're, That's a hard position. Yeah, they're mm-hmm. they're going to do that. And so it's somewhat the the personality of the athlete. And then we have to do, I think even, even like in my role as a sports psychology professional, I feel like I want to do a better job of, of vetting who that athlete is working with and what is like, what is the coach's incentive, the doctor's incentive, mm-hmm. who are they getting advice from? Is it good advice? And do they understand that this athlete is probably willing to do a lot to achieve their dreams? And so we have to be very, very careful about which direction we push them in. Hmm. Well, thank you, Lenny. Mm-hmm. People who want to find out more about you, where do I send them? And if, if are you, do you take clients? Are you working with people one-on-one if somebody had that? Or are you, uh, are you booked? Or how, how do people get a hold <laughs> of you? And how do you... I want you to I want you to use this as your opportunity to have a a, a commercial. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah so um, it always you, makes you us can... so uncomfortable to do that, shit, doesn't it? <laughs> you can book an appointment with me. Um, yeah, I have a uh, website, uh, LennyWaite.com, and my company is Weight Performance Strategies, and I work one on one with athletes um, a lot, and I am taking on new clients. So if people are interested, if they have a goal, no matter how big or how small, or if they think they're too embarrassed to talk to somebody about their goals, then if that's you, then you absolutely need to, need to make a session and book a session to, to come in and visit with me. Well, I can't recommend anybody higher. That's why I asked her to be on the podcast with me. So, cause I know she's walked the walk, talked the talk and has lived it. And so thanks again for this. I really appreciate it. And oh, and one other thing, congrats on being a new mom. Thank you. (laughs) (laughs) We'll talk to y'all later. Bye-bye.